Bibles this morning to Deuteronomy chapter 5, Deuteronomy chapter 5, and we will be commencing a series on the Ten Commandments today, Deuteronomy chapter 5, and we will be taking a look at verses 6 and 7 of Deuteronomy chapter 5, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. And if you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning, starting in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 6. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. What is the most offensive thing the Lord Jesus Christ ever said? There are many of them. You could choose from a number of things that offend our culture, but I would suggest, I would put forward to you that the night Jesus Christ, when he was speaking words of comfort to his disciples, speaking words of comfort to his disciples, he said this in John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, the exclusivity of these words from our Lord, from our Savior, comprises one of, if not the single greatest offense to our world today. From the day these words were spoken to to January 28th, 2024, as you're sitting here this morning, these are perhaps the most offensive words Jesus Christ spoke That Jesus so clearly defined himself or declared himself to be the way. You see it? The way. Something both he and his disciples would repeat over and over and over again throughout the New Testament. Jesus will say in John 10, 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Meaning, Jesus is not a way. He's not a door. He's not a truth, but he is the way, the door, and the truth. Only by him, only through him, only in him can one be saved and have eternal life. The Apostle Paul would write to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 2.18, he would say, through him, meaning through Christ, we both, meaning Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father, meaning through Christ and through Christ alone do we access God the Father. And as the Apostle Peter declared to the religious establishment of his day to a group that hated Jesus and did everything they could to stop Jesus and his apostles from preaching the gospel, after the apostles went and healed a man who had been born without the ability to walk... To them, Peter more loudly heralded this truth in Acts chapter 4. He said this, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you. 
to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And listen to this, listen closely to this, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That this reality, that this is the reality, that this is the truth, there is only one God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and there is only one way through or by which to be saved, that way being by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is, as we've already noted, probably the most offensive truth revealed by the living God in His Word. And those who hold to this truth and who proclaim it in the world, they're called many things as they try to circulate this necessary truth. If you would like to know exactly how the world responds to the exclusivity of Christ, then do this week what you should be doing anyway. Go into the world and call upon the unsaved to repent and believe the gospel because it is the only way you can be saved. Go out and do that. Simply tell the world the truth and listen to the responses you will get. What do you think they would be? You are so intolerant. You are so bigoted. You are so unloving. You are so disrespectful. Some might even stop you and say, that is not the Jesus of the Bible. You see, the Jesus of the Bible, he was all about love. And if you notice, it's kind of they never define that word, right? Like, can you define that word love for me? They never define it. Jesus was all about acceptance. He was not about judgment and exclusion. Now listen, Jesus does indeed accept all who follow him by repenting of their sin and turning to him in faith. He accepts all of those who do that. But he also excludes everyone who does not. He will judge all who die apart from faith in Christ, faith in his name, harshly. But you would hear these and many other responses. And just so you know, you are not alone. This is not something unique to our generation. The apostles, as they went and preached throughout the book of Acts, they heard much the same things as they preached the same truth 2,000 years ago. The apostles in the early days, the apostles being the disciples of Jesus Christ, the 12 that were with him after Jesus died, he sent them to preach the gospel. They went and preached and they were flogged for it. They were imprisoned for their preaching. They were mocked and they were derided for their preaching as they told the peoples about Christ's resurrection and Jesus being the only way to be forgiven of sin and have eternal life. Not only that, but as they went around preaching, they had groups of, uh, of Jews who hated them at that time, who promoted violence against them as they agitated against the gospel and its representatives in multiple cities. For example, as Paul, the Apostle Paul preached the good news of Jesus in the city of Thessalonica, we read in Acts chapter 17, verse 4, that a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women believed. And what was the result of that? Acts continues in verse 5 to 7. 
the Jews were jealous. And taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. Sound familiar? They set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. Sounds an awful lot like our day, doesn't it? This crazed, foaming-at-the-mouth type rioting and shrieking in anger against the gospel, it's not a new phenomenon. Nor was it limited to the ancient Jews either, but also to the Gentiles, because as we move to Acts chapter 19, the gospel spread throughout the city of Ephesus by the Apostle Paul's Apostle Paul's preaching. And there we read, in Acts chapter 19, verse 23 and forward, we read, About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. The way is Jesus Christ. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, Artemis was one of the gods of the Romans, or the idols of the Romans, these he got, oh, shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together, with the workmen in similar trades, and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger that not only this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. That she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. See, the entire city... The confused mob cried out in response to Paul's preaching of the the good news of Jesus Christ. They cried out words of exaltation to Artemis against Paul and his companions, but it didn't stop there. It turned into physical violence against Paul and his companions. You see, the declaration that Jesus Christ is the one and only true God and that all the gods of the nations that are made with hands are not gods, the exclusivity of this claim is what threw the city into an uproar. This was the response of the world to the apostolic preaching. Riots, shouting, physical violence against those who preached it. We can kind of even see this today. It always gets to me a little bit. Whenever I hear people who profess Christ insulting, maligning, and mocking those people who stand on the street and preach... Those people sound an awful lot like the apostles to me. Can they go overboard? Sure. But we have this tendency, right? I can't believe there's someone on the street with a sign that tells people to repent. That's so embarrassing. No, it's not. Repentance and faith is the message. And listen, it takes all kinds. If you prefer friendship being a friend to somebody and evangelizing them if you want to stand on the streets and shout then do it do that it takes all of us doing it in many different ways to reach everybody with the saving message of the lord jesus christ and as you do it prepare for the possibility of an uproar 
Now, had the apostles gone around saying something like this, Jesus is divine, and he expects to be worshipped and served alongside all of your current gods. Their message would not have been met with the same animosity and hostility that it was met with from that day to this. Would not have been met with the enraged responses we see throughout the book of Acts and the enraged responses we see throughout the world today. Why? Because so long as the choice of who to serve is left in our own hands, in the hands of the individual, we have no offense because our idol is choice. But when, great, when, the faithful great, when faithful great commission men and women witness to the lost and tell them Jesus is the way, Jesus is the truth, Jesus is the life, and no one gets to God th- but through him. So repent, meaning turn away from your sin, and put away all of your idolatries, all of your false gods, everything you worship and serve, and turn to the living God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. That inspires anger in many people. Now, people get saved by the message, amen and amen, but it also inspires anger. It elicits tremendous fury and outrage. And so, in our Western world, I don't know if you've noticed it, to keep from offending people with the direct claims of the Lord, many who profess Jesus have opted instead for a a more uncertain, a more cloudy, a more fuzzy type of faith. One that is characterized by walking around in a mental haze, indecisive and hesitating in your disposition. In fact, if you would listen to many of the talking heads who claim to be leaders in the Lord Jesus Christ's church, you will sometimes hear them say things like doubt, deconstruction, passivity, lack of conviction, uncertainty. These are more spiritual than clarity, boldness. Knowledge, firm and decisive declarations. It's more spiritual in much of the church to feign ignorance of God's word than it is to say, the Lord says this in his word, and if it says this in his word, it is true. Now believe it and do it. The number of times I've had people say to me, well, greater minds have debated this subject as a way to have me step back and stop saying what is clearly said in the Bible in order that they might establish their more liberal, progressive ideology or ideas on a subject. I can't count. Also, the, time, the amount of time we spend being okay with saying that certain doctrines, they're just unclear, they're just fuzzy. I, I don't know. I see this most in eschatology. Eschatology being the study of the end times. I hear a lot, right? There's too many ideas. So complicated. I'm just not going to look into it. Listen, the, God has given us the Bible. And the Bible is His revelation to us. He didn't give us the Bible so that we wouldn't know Him. He didn't give us the Bible so that we wouldn't know what's going to happen in the future. He didn't give us the Bible so that we wouldn't know how to be saved and how to live for Him. He gave us the Bible so that we would know all of that with clarity, certainty, and conviction. This is one of the reasons we see that that ridiculous bumper sticker. Every so often I see it. You know that one? Coexist. You ever see that one? 
one where each letter is like the symbol of some world religion. The idea behind it, it's that Oprah Winfrey brand of Christianity or religion that we who have chosen to believe in Christ, that's good. That's good for you, but it doesn't really matter which one you adhere to because they all lead to the, to the same God. But what Oprah and the coexist crowd don't quite understand is this. It is true that whatever, whatever religion you ascribe to, there will come a day when you stand before the one true and living God. That's a true statement. But it is patently false to think that if you serve anyone other than Jesus, that when you stand before God, he'll say, oh, welcome, my child. The scriptures are clear. When you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, if you stand without having believed in him, these are the words you will hear according to Matthew 25. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So if you believe the tenets of Buddhism or Islam, if you believe the tenets of any other religion in the world that is a false religion, when you stand before Christ, those are the words you're going to hear. And if you would be saved, you turn to Jesus and believe in his name. The whole coexist idea, too, it's, it's unknowingly or maybe even knowingly hypocritical. If you, if you think about it, what they do is they say, you think you know the truth. You think that serving Jesus is the only way? What an arrogant position it is to think that you have the true knowledge. And what they do then is say, no, 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 it's not you. I have the true knowledge. You notice that? There's a hypocrisy there. Stop making truth claims, saying that you know the way. I know the way, and the way is this. It doesn't matter what God you serve. You'll get to the, to the real one in the end. It's hypocrisy. But they're okay with this, however, because it leaves the choice in human hands. And ultimately, self-worship is the goal. But if you look at our text this morning, the notion that all religions our expressions or paths to the one God is clearly false. So look at again at verse 6. The Lord says this, I am the Lord your God. In this here, in this text, the Lord has already revealed his personal name to the people of Israel. When you see in your Bibles that word, Lord, all capitalized, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is the way many English Bibles translate the personal name of the Lord, the name that the Lord revealed to Moses in the burning bush. He said in this text, I am, if you take it more literally, I am Yahweh, your God. There is no other. That is my name. He said to them, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Meaning, all who claim to be gods, who have not delivered you, O Israel, from enslavement in Egypt, they are not gods. They are false. They are not to be honored, not to be worshipped, not to be respected in any way. Because I am the Lord, the only God. And Israel, I have displayed my love for you by rescuing you from your harsh bondage and your enslavement in Egypt. 
And for that reason, see, the Lord displays his love and then gives the reason and then gives the call. For that reason, because I have so clearly displayed my love for you, you shall have no other gods before me. So the Lord initiated a a relationship with Israel by delivering them from their bondage and then called them to respond to that love with undivided loyalty. You shall have no other gods before me. Which means you shall have no other gods instead of or in addition to me. This word has a lot of meanings to it. The word before can mean many things. And depending on your translation, you might also see or you might see instead of before, beside. If you don't have besides, you'll have a footnote. If you have besides, you'll see a footnote that says before. And if you have before, you'll have a footnote that says besides. The the word means both of those things. The word speaks to no other gods except the Lord. Or no other gods over the Lord. Or no other gods in defiance of the Lord's command. No other gods that you would prefer to the Lord. No other gods ranked before the Lord. Taken in this way, the word speaks to considering any god more preferable or more worthy than the Lord. Paying any mind to or giving any allegiance to any so-called God who is not the Lord, the living God, the God of Israel who rescued Israel from slavery. That's not to say that there are any other gods. There aren't. But it's a recognition that for humans, oftentimes, in those days and in this, we are governed by our passions. We all know this. We are oftentimes governed by our passions, and for Israel, the gods of the people around them were quite alluring to them. Why? Because those gods were created by the peoples in order to permit and to celebrate the people's reckless participation in the shameful desires and passions of their flesh. For humans who are led around by their urges and led by their passions and led by their lusts, to have a God who says, you have, you, you have sexual desires? Boom. Here's a God. Diana of the Ephesians or whatever. Go to her temple. Do whatever you want, as long as you want, how many times you want. Serve that God. Which is really just serving your own impulse and passion and desire. She was created by people who just want to have sex all the time so that they can have sex and have divine per- approval for that. There were gods who encouraged the love of money and greed. So if you like that, you could go to this God's temple and pray to him to have more money and to pray for forgiveness as you swindled people in order to get more money and you lied to people and you charged people exorbitant amounts of interest and you'd have divine backing from some idol to do that. They had gods who encouraged gluttony, overeating, all of those types of things. All of these gods were simply reflections of what the people wanted. And they created a statue or an idol and said, this is the God of X, Y, or Z. Now serve that God and just enjoy yourself. So the people could just pick which God they wanted to serve. And it was always the God that gave them permission to do what their deepest passions and urges were. You ever notice that? The gods of the peoples always seem to value exactly what the cultures over which they supposedly rule value. It's for this reason that the Lord, who is the God who created heaven and earth, he calls all of us to submit to his rule. 
which never changes with the cultures and the seasons and the generations. He demands that every man everywhere repent and submit to his perfect rule, something humanity throughout their generations have refused to accept because we want to worship and serve ourselves, not worship and serve some God who exists above and outside of us. And so the Apostle Paul, writing to the Roman church, he speaks about this human tendency, saying this, although they knew God, humanity has has a general sense of God, that there is a God who exists above us, who, to whom we must have some sort of attention paid. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And why? Because they suppressed Him and elevated themselves. The peoples have preferred their gods, gods made in their own image, gods who, because they don't exist, cannot see, speak, hear, or help them when they are in trouble, but who, because they don't see, speak, or hear, can be manipulated and shaped into any image that they want and exist according to the passions of the people, which ultimately is idolatry of self. It is loving myself over the Lord. So, for example, again, in the ancient days, Baal was supposed to be the god of financial success, wealth, and abundance. And Ashtoreth was the goddess of sex. While the names have changed, these are still the gods of the people. These are still the gods that are served in our own day with reckless, careless, irresponsible abandon. The statues and the wooden figurines, they've been tossed out the window. And nowadays, people feel no shame, do they? They say out loud now what would have been considered undignified in the past. What would have been embarrassing to peoples of old. I am my own God. I am a goddess, I hear some say. And even the false teachers among the Christ, in the Christian church and the prosperity types have gotten in on the act. And they've created prosperity gospels and they've started to... Uh, permit or tell their people, God values your illicit sexual deviance. If it makes me happy or satisfies me for the moment, that's my whole goal. This is one of the major problems in our world today. No one feels shame anymore. And in fact, you'll go to churches and they'll say, don't feel any shame. God has taken away your shame. It's like, no, feel shame. If you do something shameful, feel shame about it. And in that shame, turn to the Lord in repentance and have him forgive you for it. Get up and follow his word. The problem is not that we feel shame. The problem is that we don't anymore. Our whole lives are about fulfilling our own passions, our own lusts, our own desires, and we have no shame about that. Now this word, before or beside in the commandment here, it also conveys the idea of in my sight or before my face. If you go back to the old Geneva translation back in the 1500s, that's how they translated it. And this because the people's worship and serving other gods is in the Lord's sight a provocation. It provokes him to anger and ultimately issues in his perfect wrath poured out on everyone who calls on false gods. So I want you to just think for a second. Here's a question. How seriously does the Lord take this sin? It is number one on the list of ten, right? 
How seriously does the Lord take this phrase, do not have any other gods before or beside me? And we're going to take a look at what the Old Testament and the New Testament have to say about this, but I'm going to tell you, I'm going to warn you from the front, we have been raised, if you've been a, in the Christian world for a long time, we've been raised in a culture of sentimentality. That's the preferred version of Christianity. If you're out in the world too and you don't know the Lord, that's what has been fed to you uh, from the Joyce Myerses and the Joel Osteens of the world. And so if that's what you know about the Christian faith, then what the Bible actually says might be a hard pill for you to swallow this morning. See, many of us have been raised in a Christian culture that is fixated on this sentimental, syrupy, emotion-driven, anti-intellectual, therapeutic church. And it's been sustained by numerous sappy preachers who say things like, here's a book that I have that I got after my first year of Bible college, written by a man named Max Locato. And he said this. this. This is where he lives and many live, and this is the diet that many Christians have been fed. This is what he says, and I quote, If God had a calendar, your birthday would be circled. If he drove a car, your name would be on the bumper sticker. If there's a tree in heaven, your name he's carved out on the bark. What? That's girlfriend-boyfriend talk. See, we have this idea that love must be defined as romance. Biblical love is not romance, boyfriend, girlfriend love. It's not this emotive, sentimental, sappy thing. That's us taking a cultural value and shooting it up to the Lord and saying that's how he acts. The Bible paints a much different definition of love. But it's not only books, but it's the songs that we were raised on. If you were in church in the 80s and in the 90s and the early 2000s, you were raised on a certain type of song that had things like this in it. Your fragrance is intoxicating. What? I long for your embrace, O oh Lord. I want to feel your breath in the secret place. Are you getting uncomfortable with this language? This is why the Dutch church has it right. They sing the Psalms. That's it. I like that. I was looking online and they had a thing called the baby test or the Mandy test. If you could listen to a worship song and put baby at the end of it, it's not a worship song. So here's one that's very popular right now. I lay back against you and breathe. I feel your heartbeat. This love is so deep. It's more than I can stand, baby. <laughs> right? Or one major famous group right now, we are returning to the place we've always belonged, right here with you. Mandy, it was all so simple, it was easy to love, no space between us, easy to trust, baby, right? These are the songs we were raised with. Now, I want you to compare that with this. The baby test can't apply here. I want you to compare that with the songs that are rich and full, immortal, invisible, God-only wise. You can't add a baby to that. 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. A mighty fortress is our God. In Christ alone our hope is found. Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. To God be the glory, great things he has done. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. Christ, the sure and steady anchor. Come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the King. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Do you notice the difference? You can't add a baby or a mandy to any of those lines. It is so clear who we are singing to, why we are singing to them, why we are singing to him. See, one set of songs has produced a therapeutic version of the faith, which is really, I want to feel good about religion. The other inspires a full, wonderful, comprehensive, thorough, deep, full, and abounding understanding of the Lord's awesome love displayed for us as it was for Israel in his strong arm delivering us from slavery to sin and bringing us into the promised land of salvation. This type of therapeutic church has dominated much of the church landscape for decades with its fixation on romance with the Lord and falling in love with the Lord while being lost in his love and his wallet being filled with little pictures of you. While it is true, God loves his children, the love of God is no sentimental, emotion-driven, anti-intellectual love. The love of God is an active love, a soul-saving love, a kind love, a loyal love, a steadfast love, a committed love that brings you, should you call to Jesus in faith, it brings you out of your enslavement to sin into his joy-filled life in the eternal kingdom, out from the darkness into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ. Those are two different type of loves. I like one, I hate the other. So when we look at the commands of the Lord regarding those idols and gods in the land of Canaan and those who worship those gods, if you have been taken in by the sentimentalism of the Max Locatos, the Joyce Myers, the Rick Warrens, and the Joel Osteens, all of whom make a living in the sentimental, sappy space, then what you are about to hear from the word of the Lord is going to be quite jarring for you, quite startling to you. Just how seriously does the Lord take this commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. Let me just say, very. While we are not Israel on the borders of Canaan, about to enter the land and conquer it, we are not under the Mosaic law. We are not under the old covenant. So we are not called to do the things that Israel was called to do at this time. It displays to us the gravity and the seriousness with which the Lord took this command. The solemnity of the Lord telling the people. I want you to just hear Deuteronomy chapter 12. The Lord through his servant Moses declared this. These are the statutes and the rules you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess. All the days you live on the earth, you shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess served their gods. On the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their altars and burn their ashram with fire. 
You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place the Lord your God will choose out of your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. A couple of things to consider about this text. It's pretty clear, isn't it? When you read a text like this, what does it tell us about the current modern Western value of religious freedom and plurality. What does a text like this say about that subject? See, our culture makes this a big deal. This is a big thing that our culture will value. But I will tell you, there is no biblical case to be made for a Christian fighting for and respecting that value. The Christian is the one who hears and believes the word of the Lord And the Lord commands all people everywhere to repent and serve Christ. The Christian is to have no partnership with darkness at all. No fellowship between light and darkness. There is no agreement between the temple of the Lord and idols. Instead, as the Apostle Paul wrote, our duty as followers of Christ is, according to Ephesians 5, A, to discern what is pleasing to the Lord, and B, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead, what? Expose them. Not fight for them. Expose them. But to say this, to say this in our our world will cause many to lose their collective minds. Saying, we're trying to force our religion on everybody. We want everybody to be Christians. The answer to that is, yes, we want everybody to be Christians, but we can't force anything on anyone. It's our aim to expose the darkness, to inform the world about the deceptions of the devil that come in the form of false religions or other gods. Listen to what Psalm 106 says. They serve their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrifice their sons and daughters to the demons. Scripture speaks of other gods as demons. And to see, is that what the Christian wants? Does the Christian want... To value religious freedom, meaning to value the peoples of the world being ensnared by their sin and making offerings to the demons? Is that what we are going to fight for? No. I actually won't even buy something in the store if it has a picture of a boot on it or it says goddess on it or anything like that because I don't even want to give like the 20 cents profit to that company. We cannot force this on people, but we can inform the world. Because, correct me if I'm wrong, but all of us who love Jesus, what do we want? We want to see the entire world come to the saving knowledge of Jesus and be free from their enslavement to sin, free from the demonic influences in the world, and be forgiven of their sin and have eternal life. Isn't that what we want to see? We want to call people out of the darkness and into the light of Christ. And this is where we spend our energy. Not on promoting or pursuing religious plurality. Because did you hear what the Lord said to Israel about the religious symbols of the peoples in the land of Canaan? Did you see the words that were used? Destroy them. Tear them down. Dash them in pieces. Burn them. Chop them. Does that sound like a, the Lord values plurality of religion? No. But that's what what the Lord called the Israelites to do with the things or the places at which they worshipped. What about the people? This is where it starts to get a little difficult, right? 
What about the people? We're to eradicate all the idolatrous goods and gods. Anything that had connection was to be eliminated from the land. And the Lord commanded that it all be removed and it all be stamped out. I'll get to the people in a second. Got ahead of myself there. The Lord commanded that all of those places be stamped out. The first commandment makes one thing clear, as does the Lord's command to Israel about what to do with the signs and the symbols and the places of worship belonging to other gods. You eliminate all of those and you give the Lord complete, total, undivided loyalty. To enter into a relationship with God by necessity means turning from, leaving behind, completely rejecting all connections, all associations, and all practices affiliated with or founded by the religions that are despised by the Lord. And we must really take care about this. The degree of seriousness on this subject among many is very low, actually. Which is why I'm always baffled, always baffled, when I hear a Christian say things like, oh, come on, a little yoga doesn't hurt. It's just a series of stretches. I don't know if that's yoga or not. I wasn't trying to practice yoga. (laughs) It's good for my health. It's good for my movement. Based on what we just read in Deuteronomy 12, do you think the Lord agrees? Do you think that a series of movements that were initially designed by Hindus to bring the practitioner of those movements closer to the Hindu gods is something that the Lord would say, by all means, do it? No, the Lord would say, you tear down that altar and you dash that pillar into pieces if you are a child of God. We have been flippant and unconcerned about these things for far too long. In your life... The Lord calls you to smash all the high places and to have nothing to do with any other gods besides the Lord. Now, to add to the gravity of the commandment, here's where we get to the people. What about the people in the Old Testament? What did God command in ancient Old Testament Israel to do to the people who worshipped false gods? And this is where people get really offended. The book of Joshua will record some jarring records of the Lord's dealings with the idolaters in the land. The Lord doesn't deal with idolaters like that now. The Lord is giving everyone an opportunity to respond, but there will come a day when He will deal with you in a far worse way than He did to the people in Joshua should you refuse to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. For those who don't understand the holiness of the Lord, that he is a jealous God, a consuming fire, and that the worship of other gods provokes his wrath, these are going to be quite jarring for you. The Lord is the only true and living God, and for his own glory and for the good of those who are called by his name, at that time he commanded not only the the destruction of the idolatrous places, but also the destruction of the idolaters who worshipped at those places. As the Israelites entered in, taking possession of the lands, Joshua told the people, Joshua was the captain who took over for Moses, the Lord's man who led the people into the land. In Joshua 3.10, he said, He, meaning the living God, will will, will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. 
And as the armies proceeded through Canaan, Joshua chapter 10, there's a whole lot of places we could go, but Joshua chapter 10 has at least five separate times, five separate cities with the same language. We read this. It was at the Lord's command. Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negeb, and the lowland and the slopes, and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord, God, the God of Israel, commanded. And after the conquest of these southern tribes in Canaan, he moved northward and captured the cities there as well. And we read this in Joshua 11. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. The idolatry of the peoples was such that in his wrath, the Lord ensured that these Canaanites would wage war against Israel for the purpose of destroying them without mercy. Why? Because they were idolaters. Idolatry and the worship of other gods defiled the peoples and defiled the land that they lived on and provoked the Lord to destroy them. And it wasn't just the Gentiles that the Lord did this to, but also the Israelites when they turned away from the Lord and served idols too. Judges 2.10 speaks of a time when a new generation rose up in Israel after the times of Joshua, a generation who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. That speaks to the parental failure to teach their kids the ways of the Lord, which we'll talk about when we get to the commandment about honoring parents. But the book of Judges records for us the reason for this awful time in Israel's history. The reason for this, it was a brutal time of disobedience as Israel was subjected to and oppressed by other nations. And why? Judges 2 tells us. It says this, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Baals were the idols of the other peoples. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them, and they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. And again, we read in Judges 10 something very similar. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed the people of Israel. All the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. 
And the people cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Moanites oppressed you and you cried to me and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. In every instance of idolatry in the book of Judges, the anger of the Lord is provoked, which leads to a forsaking of the people as they're handed over to the gods that they they have chosen. This is called the passive wrath of God. In other words, is that what you want? You want to be dominated by sexual desire? You want to be dominated by that and you're going, to re- you're going to choose that over me? Here, have it. It's the worst punishment that God can hand out. But if the people repented of their idolatry, put those gods away, as in got rid of them and returned to the Lord, as in repented, then the Lord graciously and compassionately saved them from their oppression and enslavement. The Lord said, Go and ask them to save you. But then when they put them away and repented, you see that last line? He became impatient over the misery of Israel and Judges records that he worked on their behalf and saved them again. All of this handing over, all of this conquest, all of this devoting those who choose idols over the living God, listen, it might sound harsh to each and every one of us, but it is only a mere foreshadowing of the even greater and more terrifying end that awaits every single idolater and worshiper of false gods who refuses to repent of their grievous sin of having other gods besides the Lord. Those who rebel against the call of the Lord to turn to Him and be saved. All who die in this idolatrous state will meet an even more devastating punishment than all of the peoples in the lands of Canaan, than every time Israel was oppressed when they turned to the other gods. The final and worst punishment being thrown into the lake of fire in the end to be tormented forever by the wrath of God. But also note, when Israel repented of her sin, the Lord forgave her and delivered her. And the same offer is held out to you. If you've been an idolater, if you've rejected Jesus and have been incorporating other gods into your life, repent of your sin and confess it to the Lord and he will forgive you. Now, you might be sitting here this morning and saying to yourself, this has nothing to do with me. I've never bowed down to any other god. I've never had any statues of Baal in my house. I don't have a Zeus on my mantle or an Ashtaroth over my fireplace. I'll say, that's good. I'm happy for you. I'm glad. But Jesus, in the New Testament, expanded on and more fully fleshed out for us the definition of idolatry. To include being driven and dominated by our immoderate passions and the material things we're so desperate to gain in this life. Anything that we look to and we desire more than the Lord anything we trust in more than the Lord, anything that brings us more pleasure, comfort, and joy than the Lord Jesus Christ, those things that we think, if only I had a little bit more of that, I would be happy. 
Those are idols. Jesus said as much in Matthew 6, 24. He said this, No one can serve two masters. For either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God, and he used the word mammon, but, or money, the material things that you so desperately desire. And the Apostle Paul speaks about those who are driven by the idolatry of their passions, lusts, and urges when he says this in Philippians 3. They walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Belly being the old way of saying their passions and urges. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. The idea being that their idol or their God, the God they worship, is their, are their own passions and lusts and desires. When a passion rises up, the first thing they do is they move to feed or address that passion. This too is idolatry and a violation of the first commandment. Idolatry in every form is, con is condemned and warned against in the New Testament. Paul wrote to the Corinthian believers and he said it quite clearly in 1 Corinthians 10, 14. My beloved, flee from idolatry. And to the Ephesians he wrote, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is, an idolater, meaning following the God of their, that is their belly, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. Paul, Peter wrote to the believers living in this sinful world saying, live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And the Lord Jesus Christ said in the closing chapters of the Revelation, he said this in chapter 21, the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Meaning, anyone who chooses to live for anything with greater intensity and affection than they do the Lord, that's idolatry. You must be forgiven. You must repent of that grievous sin or you will receive your just penalty in the lake of fire. And why is the word so strong? Have you noticed how strong the word of the Lord is on this subject? Why is the word of the Lord so strong and clear on this? In the Old Testament, the Lord revealed to Israel his saving power in delivering them from enslavement in Egypt and called them therefore to live for him. That delivery from enslavement to Egypt is a picture of foreshadowing of the freedom and liberation that Jesus Christ offers to everyone today. The Lord holds out to everyone today freedom and liberation from the enslavement to sin. Sin is a harsh taskmaster that seeks your death and seeks your destruction. 
And the Lord has shown his love for the world, as he says in Romans 5. He displays his love for the world, if you are a believer here this morning, in that while you were a sinner, while you were an idolater, Christ died for you. And John tells us that the Lord displays his love to the world in this way, that he sent his one and only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish in that second death, the lake of fire, but have eternal life. See, the Lord has initiated. He has shown his love for us in the perfect sinless life of Jesus Christ, in the sin-bearing, justice-satisfying death of Jesus Christ, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Lord showed his love in sending out that offer to all people everywhere. Come to me, all you who labor and are weary, and I'll give you rest. Come to me if you are weighed down by the burden of your sin. Come to me, and I will forgive you, and I will give you eternal life, and I will forgive you, and you will be adopted into my family and become my very own son or daughter. God loved and now calls for us to respond. The Lord initiated and now says to us, as he did to Israel of old in 1 John 5, 21, little children, keep yourself from idols. Now, there are numerous other reasons as well to obey the first commandment. I've spent a lot of time on a few. There's a a number of reasons to have no other gods before or beside the Lord. For example... Have no other gods beside or before the Lord because he alone is majestic. And as Psalm 96 tells us, all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. Have no other gods before the Lord because there are no other gods. To serve, down or to, to serve them or to bow down to them is to serve lies and to bow to deception while serving Christ is to serve truth. As the Lord said, I am the first and the last, in Isaiah 44. Besides me, there is no God. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock, I know not any. You must not have any gods besides the Lord, because He alone is to be served with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. You are to have no other gods before the Lord, because there is salvation in no one else. He is the Savior of all who trust in His name. You are to have no other God besides the Lord because it provokes Him to wrath and anger. You are to have no other gods before Him because it is He and He alone who restores the soul. As we read in Psalm 23, verse 3, He restores my soul. You shall have no other gods besides the Lord because He alone is glorious. As Moses sang with Israel after their deliverance from Egypt in Exodus 15, 11, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? The answer is, no one. You shall have no other gods before the Lord, because the Lord is the giver of all good things, as James tells us. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You shall have no other gods besides the Lord, because He is King, as Hebrews tells us in chapter 1, verse 8. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. 
We are to have no other gods beside or before the Lord because it is Him who loved us first, as we read in 1 John 4. We love because He first loved us. For these and myriad other reasons, we are to worship Him, the true God, the only God, the living God, and have no other gods before Him or beside Him. And as we do, know that it is full undivided loyalty and obedience to the Lord from a heart of gratitude for the salvation that he has given to us who believe in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that truly promotes and inspires your life and your joy. Sin will argue and quarrel with this. Your passions and your urges will argue and quarrel with this. But Jesus said, they only seek to kill you and destroy you. I have come that you might have life, and not just life, but life to the fullest. This is the witness of Scripture. If you would have life and joy, believe in Jesus. Have no gods before him or beside him. Instead, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind. In closing, it is for this reason that the psalmists could write such magnificent statements as these, as I'll leave you with them. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And, Psalm 40, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. Father, we give you praise and honor and glory this morning for so clearly outlining for us your will with reference to complete undivided loyalty to you. We know, as your word tells us, that you are the way, you are the truth, you are the life, you are the only God. All other gods, so-called gods, are just worthless idols. So I pray this morning that everyone who has put their faith in you would feel, a, would feel joy and abundance this moment, knowing that you initiated the relationship that they have with you by sending Jesus Christ for them. And I pray that you would help us and inspire us to live a more devoted, dedicated, undivided, loyal life for you. For those who haven't come to the saving knowledge of Jesus, I pray that you would be beating down their souls right now, showing them what it is up to this point that they've been living for, which, as your word says, is worthlessness. I pray that you would help them to see that it is time to put away the idols, put away their gods, put away serving myself or themselves over everything else. And turn to you, the source of life, freedom, rest, joy, forgiveness, and salvation. We pray this all in Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen.